Hello, Ledgers. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, we catch up with Cub member Andrew Billy Baxter, one of Australia's marketing industry kings, having been the CEO of some of our largest agencies, including Ogilvy Australia and Publicist. We speak about some of the great campaigns that he's been involved in and behind, including Pork Australia, Amy Insurance, and Coca-Cola, including the Coca-Cola campaign that put your name on their bottles and cans. Each campaign had tons of takeaways that we as business owners can implement and learn from. I guarantee you're going to walk away from this one with tons of new ideas and inspiration for your own marketing. I know I did. Enjoy the show. Why is your why is your nickname Andrew Billy Baxter? You know, I Paul Kelly, the singer, mm-hmm. you know, um, we, and he's been a great singer for 40 years. He's one of his first hits was called I Wanna Be Like Billy Baxter. And it was named after a Melbourne musician. And if you read Paul Kelly's book that came out last year, there's a there's a section in there about it. So this song's like, I wanna be like Billy Baxter. And I went to school the next day, and of course everyone starts singing it at me. And I was in like year eight. And I've had that nickname ever since and wherever I've played <laughs> footy or business, someone will always know me as Billy and then it just gets around and then How funny it. and it just stuck like just that because I was um, – Mikey Taylor referred you to cover, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. He, he to- When he first told me about you, he said, oh, Billy Baxter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How funny is that? And so that survived. That was when you were 14. Yeah, like 1981. And I, I mean, I, I, there's an old footy trophy I've got one year. And it says William Baxter on there because they actually <laughs> thought my name was Billy Baxter. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that like, yeah, in school people can just give you random names and they and they last. Yeah. And, uh, and they become part of your identity. They do. And and when I stepped out and did my own thing four years ago, um, a couple of designer mates of mine who did my business cards and logos, they're like, you've got to embrace this. So they created my logo as Billy with me sort of, you know, sticking through it. So How good. And, um, and you have a few podcasts yourself, don't you? I do. There's two. Uh, one's called The Marketing Commute and that's all about celebrating Australian marketers that have made it internationally. We, we often, you know, when we're doing podcasts and we're doing interviews, we look locally, you know, well, who's the, you know, there's some great marketers in this country right now like Lisa Ronson at Coles and Brent Smart at, um, at, uh, at IAG and NRMA. I knew – because some of the people I went through university with and some people I dealt with years ago, they'd been overseas for 20 years. They were running major brands globally as heads of marketing, but no one had put two and two together. So I think we've interviewed 27, um, you know, Australian marketers who have made it globally and it's been really interesting. What's that one called? It's called The Marketing Commute. That's a really cool how, – why, how did you find that or how, why did you choose that niche? How did you think of it? Uh, I was I was worried that people weren't celebrating – these types of people and they actually existed. So um, it was before COVID that we came up with the name and then called it the marketing commute because you could listen to it on your commute to or from work. Um, it was a half hour episode. I did it with a, a mate of mine, Mike Boyd, and then Carmen Becker, who's also um, a good friend of mine. And she'd run an agency over in uh, in London and now she's um, a senior um, partner at uh, KPMG. So we got together and, and we got the, uh, the, the Dean of Marketing at uh, Sydney Uni got involved and we just sort of evolved. We've had a lot of fun doing it. Our most popular episodes, interestingly, are those where we've had marketers who have become founders. So Naomi Simpson, uh, Stuart Greger from uh, Four Pillars Gin, 
So our next season, which we're about to get into, is going to be around marketers that have become founders and CEOs. That's so a fantastic idea. That's you cool. really are a, 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 like a master of the marketing universe. No, you, you, that, that's your field. You, you've been in that. Have you been in that from? Oh, yeah. Dave? Since since I, I started studying accounting originally at uni, and then switched. You after studied a year. accounting? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no way! Yeah. And I switched after a year into marketing. Fair to say, my my accounting marks weren't that strong. So thankfully, I'd would switched before uh, they figured that figured out what my marks were. Um, and uh, yeah, I just loved the marketing field. That's what I studied. I did a couple of years in sales and marketing at Gillette straight out of uni and then I got into the agency world. So, you know, we often say everyone's got their their super skill, I suppose, marketing Yours and communications. Marketing. Yeah. And, and you you were the head of a, a large marketing agent or firm, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. So I for from 2014 to 2018, my last major role, I was the CEO, then the executive chairman of Publicis and Publicis um, for many people who are listening, um, brands like Mojo, are owned by, or what was the old Mojo brand, is owned by publicists. It's now Mojo called, was one of the biggest, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the biggest yeah. ones. And then Leo Burnett, Saatchi and Saatchi, um, Digitas from a digital point oh, So you were the CEO of the company that yeah. owned all of yes. those. Oh, that's a big fucking role. Yeah. So that was there was over a thousand people in that area that um, I was looking after. And before that, I ran Ogilvy, which was, you know, obviously a really famous name globally. And in this country for many years, it was Singleton Ogilvy and May. That was John Singleton had a 66% share in it. I only overlapped with John for probably about nine months until he'd retired, but I, I ran that. I ran the Melbourne office for four years and ran it nationally for for three. And we did some famous campaigns, or the team did. You can never claim it as the CEO, but uh, the Ronda and Katut campaign for Amy, and the you know when you, the names on the side of the cans of Coke, the share of Coke campaign. So incredible. And oh, you guys did the name thing, yeah, and that went all around the world. That was out of the Sydney office, went oh, all around wow. the world. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, that uh, is very cool. I I always think like one of the, I don't know why this sticks with me. And I, th- I reckon I've mentioned it on other episodes before, but one of the best marketing I reckon is the Amy ads with just that Amy girl at the end, just smiling at you. Like, you know, she's, she's yeah, beautiful. She's got the brown hair and a red lipstick and she just looks so nice. I'm like, that's exactly the type of person I want to speak to when I call an insurance company. You know, <laughs> and, and, and they've been clever, right? That was all, that was all about you're going to get in touch with a person and they're going to answer the phone in four rings. Unlike all the other insurance companies that, you know. Was that the kind of That was part of the, the background to it. And now I think since I've left, I've been watching, I keep an eye on those sorts of campaigns and, and now they've got multiple um, Amy people at the end of the ads and you'll see different versions uh, yeah, of Yeah, they've got to have a bit of diversity now. Yes. That's why. They've so, um, got to make the, the same ad but just diverse. Yes. But that that would be 30 Odd years that they've um, they've you know stuck to the one campaign. It did win one of the big effectiveness awards for long term campaigns. Oh, I, re- I actually reckon it's probably my favorite campaign. And even lucky you're with Amy. I'm like fuck yeah, I'm lucky I'm with Amy now. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm trying to think who wrote. There was the, I'm not even with Amy. And I'm like, <laughs> I still feel lucky. I can't remember if that was written by um, Mike Brady. You know, they did up there because Alien. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he used to write a lot of the jingles back in those days. And I can't remember whether the Amy one was one of his or not. Um, oh, so someone sits down and actually writes those jingles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an awesome yeah, yeah. job. There's I should have done that. <laughs> There's a guy in Melbourne now, Mikey Burrows, who who he's the man. He's the man. He's if, the you want jingle a, if you want a jingle written, yeah. you go and see Mikey. <laughs> Good. And and what made you start your podcast? Um, look, that that one was. I actually was going to write a book on on all of these. And you know, I, I write um, marketing columns for the Australian and have done since 2013. And I was thinking, oh, you know, I like my writing and I was going to write a book on some of these famous advertising stories and some of these famous advertising and and marketing people. And I ended up, ended up turning it into a podcast. I think podcasts were becoming quite, this is about three or four years ago when we started it. 
So that one was a bit of fun um, when that, we started that one. And then the other one I do is called um, Next on the Menu. And uh, one of my board roles is currently as chairman of Australian Pork. And uh, I do that podcast with Mitch out of Mitch and Mark, who have been on the block in a couple of seasons. And, uh, and Mitch worked in marketing for 15 years for us at Australian Pork. And uh, he ran our uh, program with our restaurateurs. So he would be also always trying to convince the Colin Fasniches and his restaurants to put pork on the menu or ham get some or bacon. Pork on your fork. Get some pork on your fork. And so we wanted to do something that was a bit more forward thinking. And so that podcast is about the future of food. It's looking about where's food going toward 20, 2050. You know, there's going to be, there's 7 billion people in the world now. There's going to be 10 billion by then. Where, where, how do we feed the other 3 billion? And we've interviewed everyone from the global CEO of KFC to the founder's son of Dilma T in Sri Lanka. So we've gone all around the world on that wow. one, just interviewing people on their perspectives of where food's going. Where are we putting the people, first of all? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Um, and, but, and, and, but why did you start a podcast? Because you know, a lot of people start podcasts and a lot of people want to start a podcast. I mean, for like for us, me and Laura were saying for a long time, we should probably start a podcast because of, I mean, we're, we're surrounded by a bunch of people like you, like you at, at Cub. So, you know, we have a lot of interesting people. We should probably talk to them. And uh, I don't know, do you, well, I'm looking at Laura because it's kind of, we discussed it. We, we started because COVID happened and we wanted to support um, all business owners outside of just our members. And I thought, we thought this was a good way to do it. Yeah. But, but we never had any like financial uh, intent. No. From it, it was more just like I enjoyed talking to people, and and also I wasn't being able to meet many of the members anymore, and so I was meeting a lot of members because of the podcast, yeah. uh, and it became really good. But I get what was your yeah? Reason? I think I think the marketing one was just a um, one of my roles is 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 the adjunct professor of marketing at Sydney Uni, and so I'd been discussing about how we dial up because Sydney Uni is really well known for, say, medicine and a lot of other things, but not necessarily, you know, the business school, even though the business school is one of the highest ranking in the country. And uh, and so we're, we were, he and I had been chatting about, oh, how do we do something different to position the University of Sydney's business school in a, in a more positive and thought leadership type way? I've been talking, I've been thinking about my book idea. My other friend, Mike Boyd, who is involved, he he's, does a lot on radio. He, he's sort of, the you know, one of those tech guys and digital guys that they often get on to interview on various radio shows. And and he and I were saying, oh, what would we ever do? And then I was sort of still thinking about it. So it was a bit of a combination of everything. And, and look, and I had a, you know, outside of my business career in when I finished um, playing AFL at sort of the, the second, the next level down, I commentated on Fox footy for about five years and I uh, was lucky enough to host the Sydney Swans TV show. This is back in the early 2000s. Um, and so I always loved, you know, the podcast, the radio, the TV, all that sort of stuff. And then my real career got in the way of all that. So I was also looking for just a bit of fun. I was like, you, yeah, there's no intention to make any money out of it. I mean, it went to the number one business podcast within two weeks. So it was wow. pretty cool. Wow. Um, whereas the, the – the, You the, beat the, us. We're, we're going to get number four. <laughs> oh, look at that. I'm not sure. I'm so it. upset. Honestly, when, <laughs> when we – and also when we when we got to number four, I was like, you fucking kidding me? I prefer number ten, like <laughs> one away from the top three. I was like yeah, – and not, our goal was the top three. Yeah. Oh, it was a very four. depressing day for me. But I think – and the, the next on the menu one was just more about strategically Australian porks trying to be a bit more progressive as an industry, as an agricultural industry to really – talk about the positives of the industry as well. Um, and, uh, you know, because obviously sometimes agriculture has a bit of a negative con- connotation and I think it's an you know, it's a $80 billion industry in Australia. The, the pork industry is about $5 billion of that $80. Um, and so that was sort of more of a classic, well, here's a brief and what would we do to 
do it. Um, and then obviously Mitch and I have a lot of fun doing it. And Mitch is a real character and super smart, knows so much about the industry and he's got a lot of respect of a lot of the people we interview. So that one's um, – I'm never quite sure where he's going to go on that podcast because he's, he's a wild cat. He's, 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 for those that have watched The Block, you know, everyone knows he's uh, – uh, he's, he's a great guy, but he's a, he, he's a little bit unpredictable on occasion. <laughs> and and, and what, what's the thinking behind making the episodes half an hour? Because um, everyone says, like, oh, people don't listen past 10 minutes or don't listen past half an hour. Or- yeah, I think for all of ours, we were – look, I mean, we knew that the, the on the on the next on the menu one, a lot of farmers were going to actually be our audience and a lot of them write to us and say, oh, I'm sitting in my tractor, um, I've, been, I've been out, you know, out – putting some grain in or doing whatever and, and they say, oh, it's been great. I've just listened to four of your episodes while I've been, you know, in the tractor or, or driving from one one of my properties to the next because, you know, you forget that a lot of these farmers, they're living way out and it literally can be half an hour between one part of the property to the other. So so that one we sort of knew that that was likely to be the audience um, whereas the marketing one we knew was going to be the marketing industry and most of them at the time were, you know, commuting to and from work and we're trying to figure out, well, what can we give them that's – interesting and different because there's so many different podcasts out there in these spaces. Well, now, and especially now. Well, I mean, I, what I think is cool about what you did with yours is that uh, they're, they're quite niche. You know what I mean? It's like, I wouldn't say they're probably flooded spaces for, for podcasts, whereas our, ours definitely is. The only difference we have is that we just interview cub members. Uh, so it's, it, it, it represents cub real well. <laughs> but, but yours are at least niche. My thinking behind, like we've been told, the stats on podcast listening, and I, and I can't remember, Laura probably knows the actual stats, but they only listen, like most people only listen half an hour or something like that to, to most podcasts. But when, like, as are normally around an hour, and I've been wanting to make them longer because some people you can just talk to longer. Like some people it's just easier to talk to than others. So, but anyway, my point is we never wanted to make it half an hour because, you know, if you don't like the episode, you can just turn it off. Yeah. But if you like that person, <laughs> you like listening to them, well, like, I'd want to hear more. Like yeah, yeah. if I'm listening to a podcast, that's what I like about like, for example, Joe Rogan's podcast. They go for so long that if I really like that person, like I've got heaps of content that yeah. I can listen to from them. If I get over them, I'll just turn it off. Yeah. So I, I, I like that. No, I, I like the hour. And I, I remember going on one before I started mine, um, One of the, a young guy that used to work for me, Ram Costillo, he's terrific mind. He, he does a lot of touring around the US and teaching people about the, the power of design and he's written a couple of books on it and, He's got a podcast on almost, you know, creative thinking and creative minds. It's, it's called Creative Giants or something like that. And um, you'll probably, I'll probably be in trouble for him for not remembering the exact name, but, um, or Giant Thinkers, that's what it's called. Um, and and his is an hour and he's interviewed everyone from Kelly Slater to, and it's all people with just incredible creative minds. And I was lucky enough to go on there and it, it was an hour and it felt really good. Like you were having a really good chat and it was, it was almost felt a bit like this is your life at the same time as you walk through uh, how it went. But um, he was really trying to understand yeah, how people think, and you know that was his angle, and he still he still does it. He's um, but but I agree with you. Those sorts of ones. I mean, I remember listening to the Kelly Slater one he did, and it was all about his surf parks and how he designed those. So it wasn't about him surfing, which is what you'd expect. It was all about how he got into and spent ten years designing his own, you know, surf park with the with the you know the um the man made waves and all that sort of stuff. And it was really interesting just listening. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like, if that went for three hours, it doesn't mean you have to sit there for three hours. I mean, I'll listen to half an hour now, I get in the car and it just comes on while I'm in the car. Maybe you have to fly to Melbourne. It, you know, it just gives you more content of, with people you like. But, um, and what do you think makes you special about, uh, like, speaking about creative minds and, you know, how they think, how they're different? What, why do you think you're good? Why, why, why were you good? Why are you good at marketing? Um, 
bit weird to talk about it, but I think in general marketers who are very, very curious do quite well. Like if you think about what marketing is I feel like to people do. in general who are curious, curious probably yeah. do pretty well. Because marketers are often trying to either simplify things to get a message across. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, marketing exists to sell, right? I mean, marketing was created. Um, interestingly, often people say to me, where's, where's advertising come from? Well, advertising as a word is from the Latin advertere, which, you know, for some Italians, they'll, they'll, they'll hear some of the, the right things in there, but that means to move one's mind. So it's, you know, so marketing and advertising is always there to help, you know, move people's, move mind. people's minds and get them to change their behaviors to buy something different or try something different. Uh, so from that point of view, I think uh, I was always interested in, in, in that side of business. And my dad owned news agencies as when I was, uh, you know, sort of teenage years. And so you would often stand behind the, the register and people would be buying magazines or newspapers or cards or whatever it might be. And you were trying to sort of, you know, figure out how to upsell them a little bit and get something extra and, you know, you learnt that. And so for me, there was just an interest in, because I knew I had an interest in business and it wasn't until I did a year of accounting that I realised it wasn't the financial side, it was the the marketing and sales side that was that was sort of in me um, and, I, and I really liked that. So I think the curiosity is key. I think the ability to simplify complex things is key and I think the problem solving is also really important because most times you get a brief in my big ad agency days, it'd be like, well, we need to, you know, we're about to IPO Maya or we are going to relaunch the Bank of Melbourne after it, that brand not existing for 10 years. I mean, these are major moves, marketing and communication challenges to get that right. Uh, and, and it involves so many moving pieces. And, and yes, you know, we talked before about the Ronda and Katutz and the share of Coke and they're some of the more famous campaigns for me, some of those bigger challenges were the ones that most interested me. I mean, 11 months of rebuilding a bank from scratch. And so you looked at it as problem solving. It was okay, this, we've been presented with a problem. We need to relaunch uh, this bank that hasn't been around for a while. And and what I would find really uh, interesting myself is, is simplifying the launch of that bank. So maybe what are the key points or what is the key point we're going to focus on to launch this bank, to communicate so that people – like what's the most important yes. point for people to remember? Is that what how, yeah. how, how you and, think about and, it? And getting it down to a, a brief like that. I mean in that case we got it down to the simplicity of this is a bank for Melburnians, right, because it was called the Bank of Melbourne and what do Melburnians need? Interesting, the first two customers they signed up were um, I think was Guy Grossi and Grossi Florentino, like a Melbourne icon and the MCG. So that very symbolically as part of it all – you know, it all tied in pretty clearly that this was going to be about Melbourne and understanding Melbourne and the broader metropolitan And Melbourne area. love, Victorians love Melbourne. Yeah, like yeah. It's it's very, yeah, yeah. not insular, but they, they just love, yeah. rightfully so, Melbourne's yeah. awesome. And that became the fastest growing bank Australia's ever seen for the first five years. Um, you know, most banks when they start will grow by up to 1% market share and this was growing at 2% share a year for five years. So it was, uh, it was a pretty, that, those sorts of projects for me, I was like, wow. And I'm still, you know, you, you're right in the, in the huddle with a whole lot of people, not just your agency, but, you know, the marketing team, the CEOs, everybody. And, and you know, I'm still very good friends with many of the people involved in that project and it's, you know, probably And so 12, what was the simple message that was delivered? That one was, it was a bank for Melburnians 
Um, yeah, we're for Melbourne. Good, yeah, we're for Melbourne. Yeah. Um, you know, built built by Melburnians for Melburnians, and, and you and everything revolves around that. So you went then and got the, the you know the, the most Melbourne institutions there are to you know their MC, to sign yeah, on. Yeah, everyone and, and even the design of the logo looked very Melbourne. It sort of mirrored a little bit of what Federation Square looked like. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we did ATMs that had pictures of the MCG behind the ATM. Instead of just sticking an ATM up like we normally were doing for every other bank on the wall, we created a, a picture, but an image, famous Melbourne images. That's behind. cool. So you just they're little things that just every, so every time. So yeah, and the credit cards still to this day. I'm going to pull one out now. Oh, my my cards over there. But even the credit <laughs> cards um, have got images of Melbourne still on them. Like whereas you get your other bank cards and they're just red or orange. So we just were trying to yeah, do things so that were different. What, so you didn't just communicate where Melbourne's bank. You you acted on that in every 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 experience the the per, a, per, a customer could have with the bank. Yeah. Really highlighted that we yeah. love Melbourne. We had a we we took a floor of a building um, between us, and uh, the four walls. There was one set of windows. So the three sets of walls, and it was a big floor. Had pin floor to ceiling pinboards, the entire way around. So instead of walls. Every wall was pinboards. And literally over 11 months, a bank unfolded on those walls. You know, the designs of the ATM, how the design of the actual the branches were going to look. Um, every letter, because you know how many automated letters you get from banks. I think there was 120-something automated letters. How do we rewrite those in the tone of Wow. That? You know, so every piece of communication, every touch point was literally living. So the executive at, um, at Westpac that owned... Bank of Melbourne could come in and just go, they could see the bank, you know, they could see and feel how it was going to be. So it was an incredible project with that many touch points. I mean, the website, the way that brochures were done, we had first time banks had touch screens. So instead of just getting a standard brochure for your particular home loan, you know, by hitting a few buttons, it would print out a more tailored one to the sort of thing you were looking for. So, and some really smart young digital people involved in that who are now some of the top digital marketers in the country. Wow. Um, so, yeah, really, yeah. So that sort of stuff's just, I mean, it's, it's fun, but, the, the, you know, the, the, the money, the upside of the business of being the fastest growing bank and, and, and the value of that to a company like Westpac is enormous, um, all driven by some very um, bright people in in the marketing. But what it, sound, like, for, what it sounds like that you did m- – most is impact the customer's experience with the bank. So it wasn't just about, how, you know, like we're creating a message. You were looking at every email, the tones, the voice, the the images, the when you experience the taking out money, the experience of receiving your pamphlet. Like you really, it was, you could almost say that the, the primary role was more so impacting the experience the customer was having. Yeah, correct. And, and you know, so we did little things like we um, – we knew, you know, we knew how Melbourne works. So we knew the Victoria markets, which is like, you know, for the Sydney side, it's like Paddy's markets or whatever. They opened at 5am. So why wouldn't the bank open around the corner at 5am for them? Wow, that is very, very cool. Yeah, right? Yeah. Just just little things that just made everyone go, oh, they get it. Yeah. They- and how about the pork, how about the pork um, industry? Because I actually think that the pork industry, like put it this way, I don't buy pork. Without saying I'm getting some pork on my fork, <laughs> yeah. like it really did work on me. And then it's leaner than uh, it's leaner than I feel it with more protein, healthier, healthier. Cool. It is, and yeah. Uh, and yeah. So for the last ten years, it's been the fastest growing protein in this country. Um, uh, interestingly, it's just between pork, ham, and bacon. We've just gone past beef in per capita consumption. <laughs> the pigs are just rolling. Yeah, 
Um, and it's one of the more sustainable. You, you wouldn't uh, want to be a pig right now. <laughs> no. And it's one of the more sustainable industries because if you think about it in its basic form, I mean, you know, a pig might have um, 12, 13, 14 piglets at a time. You know, a sheep or a cow has one, maybe Probably two. Less. And they need um, more space. And Yeah. And uh, and the, 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 the environment, um, there's about 15 or 16% of farms now that are basically powering their own farm via pig manure by flushing it into dams and covering it and, and collecting the biogas and turning that into electricity and powering their entire farm. So there, there's an opportunity with many of the farms to to be a lot more sustainable. Um, you know, we can we can control the water and the collection of the water and recycling the water and a lot of things like that. So it's quite – I've learned a lot um, being involved in it um, and, uh, and it's a great industry, really good people. Um, I'll never forget when I was a kid, I watched a Simpsons episode when Lisa's telling Homer, like – no, Dad, ham and bacon and pork, they come from the same animal. He's like, sure, Lisa, there's one magical animal that has all this. <laughs> bacon, yeah. bacon. Isn't that so funny? That is a brilliant show, that. No one talks about The Simpsons anymore, but, God, they were just so accurate and so Iconic. much stuff. But no, look, and the marketing of pork on your fork um, and the, the team, um, Peter Hayden, who's been the head of marketing and now he's the COO, he's been there for a long time. He's been very consistent. He's one of the best marketers in the country and his team um, who have been consistent, um, you know, they really uh, push him and now they're taking charge of the brand and they're doing a great job. So, again, um, you know, the, the mar- sometimes we want to change our marketing. I mean, you know, intuitively we go, oh, we've run that campaign for a couple of years, let's change to a new one. It's the campaigns we've talked about, Amy, so far. We've talked about pork on your fork. They're sustainable long-term campaigns that continue to work. You've got to update, you know, the nuances and the and the cultural um, um, needs or, or or wants and desires of consumers at that point in time. Because yeah, what? Because there are different social norms and acceptance yeah. things accepted at different times. Correct. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're just we're, look. It's it's you know the industry is doing very well, and um, and yeah, we're um, good people. It's a it's a, it's a great organisation. I'm really enjoying doing it. We've got we've got um, yeah, just good board, the whole thing. And what was the what was the thinking behind? Because I actually want to get into your story in a second, but just before we do, what was the thinking behind the names on the coke ca- the no, the coke yeah. cans? So the brief um, it was interesting. I was running the Melbourne office when the when the brief originally went into the agency, and it was actually pitched out to all of Coca Cola's agencies at the time. Um, so there was probably five or six different agencies: of the media agency, the PR agency, that all worked on it. And the brief was around. The teenagers were drinking obviously less Coke, you know, and it dropped quite significantly with all the other options that teenagers could could access from um, sports drinks to flavoured waters to whatever it might have been. So the brief was really about how do we, you know, um, get get teenagers a bit more engaged in the Coca-Cola brand across the board, not just the full, you know, um, that could be anything from the, you know, the no sugar Coke to the whatever, but just the Coca-Cola brand. How do we re-engage them? And at the time, you know, one of the insights was that that was when social had just started sort of 2010, 2011, and, and every kid wanted their 15 seconds of fame, right? And that not 15 minutes, 15 seconds. And, you know, nowadays that's the norm, right? Um, and so one of the young creative teams came up with a concept of, well, why wouldn't we put the 150 most popular names in Australia um, of teenagers So because you can backtrack to when they were all born, and figure out what they were and why don't we put those on the cans. And the idea um, the Coca-Cola team really liked and when I, I then got promoted to be the CEO nationally sort of as this was all happening. So um, and, and, and then it was about how do you make sure a great idea like this 
continues to live on and stays sold because the challenges, I mean, nowhere in the world have they ever taken the logo off the can of Coke. Oh, so the logo wasn't on the can. It was just the name. Yeah. So that's a big right. deal. Within, this, within the, the swirl, right? Mm. But, you know, it would say, you know, Daniel rather than Coca-Cola, right? So, um, and then how do you change the printing and the manufacturing plant to enable that to happen? So there's a lot of logistics sometimes. So these you can have great ideas, but actually executing them really, really well is hard. Um, you know, as part, they then um, they they built a machine that you could go to Westfield and literally, if you weren't one of the 150 and you wanted your name on there, you could go to the Westfield, type your name in, and there was queues for miles, um, and get that printed on a can immediately. Now they had to. I think at the time there was probably four or five thousand names that we had to say no to because there was religious names and we didn't want Pepsi on a Coke can. You know, so just thinking through these things. And there's moments in time where these ideas yeah, that's complex. Yeah, these ideas can fall can can fall away and just everyone goes, it's too hard. Now, you know, they've now run that in over a hundred countries uh, around the world, that campaign. And and it's been a huge success. Uh, and so, you know, from little ideas can come incredible success. You know, one of the things I reflect on is how do you how do you charge for an idea like that? Right? You know, because most, most, most professional services, organizations, consulting firms still were just charged by the hour. Well, it took our people this long. Well, that idea is probably worth a, like, has created a billion dollars of value. Yeah. How do you charge? How do you charge? So, but the tradition's always been just to charge by, um, well, by, I guess by the how thing, many hours. The it thinking took to behind make it. that is if you're the be- if you're the better agency, you have the better idea. Your idea with Coke was so good. Other agencies are going to come want to pay you. Uh, sorry, not agencies. Clients. Other companies, yeah. clients come pay you. They'll pay you more because you, you know, you're that good. We, we want to. You got to hire per hour. I mean, you yeah. can get cheaper lawyers than other lawyers, so it can be the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same correct. kind of concept. But it was. I mean, look, and a lot of people's careers did very well out of that. I mean, I was just lucky enough to be the CEO who was there when it all happened. And you know, all you can do is encourage everybody to to keep pushing and get, keep this thing sold and, and, and that it's a great idea and we shouldn't let it die and all those sorts of things. Yeah. So, well, problem solving, like you yeah. were saying. we just yeah. got to solve an, enough problems that there aren't anymore. We can just do it. Yeah. And it's just like business. Yeah. And, and the Amy ad, I remember the night before looking at the first campaign of that Ronda and Kukuk campaign and I'm like, it's not good. You know, it's, it's not good enough. I mean, it's boring. It's sort of been done before. It wasn't what eventually happened. It was sort of there was – an initial one with the ticker tape parade just to launch the campaign of, of Rhonda being the the smarter, you know, the, the, the safest driver that had ever been and she was being celebrated for it because the, bri- right. the brief on that one, the simple brief was they were launching a brand new product where you got cheaper insurance for the safer driver that you were. Um, the first time an insurance company had offered that and, uh, and so they created this character called Rhonda who was the safest driver there had been and the ticker tape parade was sort of the launch of everyone celebrating her and the second ad was – her using her savings to go to Bali where she met Katut and the rest is history. So, but when I saw the first bit, I'm like, no, 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 this is, you know, and they're like, no, 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 wait, let me explain. And then you're like, oh, okay, this is great, you know, like, and then they presented it the next day to the client and he loved it and the rest is history. So there's moments when you're in a creative industry where things can tip one way or the other. Mm. Um, yeah, you could, uh, I mean, something, a great idea could not come to fruition yeah. or be action. Yeah. And how did you get to that position? How did you get to the position where you're running these big, Firms, what, what, what's your? Because you were, I mean, you were you, early in your career. Did you start playing AFL or something like that? Yeah, yeah. So I was, so early in my career, I, I did my uni degree in marketing. In the end, were you born I, in Sydney or Melbourne? Born in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, got a job at Gillette, um, more in sales because 
the, when I left uni, it was literally that last big recession, sort of 1990, 1991. I remember being told after I got the job at Gillette that 400 people had applied for the job. You're like, wow. And I was lucky. One of my um, mates from uni, he was a mature age student and he was quite senior at Gillette. Um, and he'd, I found it afterwards, he'd sort of said, I'll oh, just make sure you interview this guy, put him in the last 20. And so I went from 400 to 20, thanks to him. Much better odds. (laughs) Much better odds. And then obviously got the job and, you know, and I think it it was in the Papermate division, which they owned at the time, Liquid Paper and Papermate and Parker Pens. And because of my dad owning news agencies, there was a nice fit between, you know, my understanding as well as my degree that I just finished. So that was the start. But, you know, a lot of my family's always been in advertising. Um, My uncle uh, or two, my uncle, my great uncle, um, a number of my cousins. So it's sort of one of those things that subliminally is in the blood. And uh, I was living with my cousin at the time. He now runs one of the other big ad agencies to this day, uh, ad agency groups um, uh, called uh, uh, Interpublic, which is, uh, you know, Universal McCann, the media agency and initiative. And uh, he's, he's had an amazing career as well. We're the same age. We were, we were, uh, we were sharing a house, and he came home, and he was working in media for Young and Rubicam, and they just won the N- Nintendo account. And he said, "Oh, you should go for the account manager's job on Nintendo. We've won, like, we've won the account. They're going to look for a young at which company at Young and Rubicam, yeah. which is one of the good eight advertising agencies. It's called VML YNR now. And uh, anyway, I went through a whole process of applying, and and got that job. And my first few clients were like Nintendo, Converse. Chupa Chups, Tabcor and Lego's Pasta. You know, Lego's Authentico. I mean, I look back now and go, how lucky was I to work on? But but Nintendo in the early to mid-90s wasn't going so well. Neither Chupa Chups was seen as a lollipop for three-year-old kids, not a cool brand that it is today. Converse had sort of had its height, you know, heights in the 70s and had dropped off and anyway, we turned it back into a great fashion brand in this country and it, and, and, and so – you know, and we and we were a young agency, so that was that. So you know, working on those bigger brands, and you were an account manager, yeah, though, young so account you weren't manager. necessarily in the creative. No, no, it was it was more sort of project managing. You know, so something like Nintendo, we might produce I don't know fifteen TV ads a year to sell all the new Nintendo games, um, and then with that would go posters in the stores and magazine ads back then, and radio ads, and any way of just letting you know young people and parents know that a new game was out there that they should buy. And and as an account manager, you're literally coordinating all of the pieces from the creative team to the strategy team to the production team to the finance team to make sure we make money. And and so the great role of doing those account management roles in advertising agencies is you, you, get, you get to work with everybody. You're not just in one area. And then Obviously, over time, I got promoted, promoted until I was running those accounts and I was sort of leading those accounts as what they called back then a group account director um, and I had a great time. And part of my challenge at that point after doing that for nearly six years was that I was seen around the world by Young and Rubicam as this youth expert because, you know, those sorts of brands, you know, at this point I'm still not even 30. Oh, they are brand selling to a lot of young people yeah. and you were young. Yeah. yeah. And so they would, you know, I remember going to New York and meeting with them in London and they were picking my brains on youth marketing and – and I, and I had this thing of going, I don't want to be pigeonholed. I'm going to get old at some point and I can't be a youth marketer. And an opportunity came up to move to Sydney to be um, sort of the um, head of account management and to IC of the Sydney office and, and sort of rebuild. That had gone through a few troubled times and we ended up pitching for a whole lot of business like Jim Beam, Taubman's Paints, H&R Block. We, we won a lot of stuff and we did some great fun um, advertising, um, particularly the Jim Beam work back then and and one of the things I've been lucky over, over that career when I was when I was sort of on the tools in the ad, advertising group was I, I had brands that were in the same life stage I was going through. You know, so Nintendo, Chubba Chubbs, Converse, then all of a sudden it was like 
H&R Block and doing my tax return and being a bit more grown up and, and but also Jim Beam rather than beers. And then I remember just after um, I, I went, when I went and joined um, Singleton Ogilvy and Mather, one of the accounts I worked on was Huggies and we just had our first kid, Tom, and my son's now at university. <laughs> and uh, so all of a sudden you were working on Huggies and had the insights whilst you were a first-time dad, you know, and, and mum with my wife going through that. So I think the pathway was that I, I just kept – I was lucky enough to do well and keep running bigger and bigger accounts and bigger and bigger groups. And by the end of it, you know, you're running – you know, when I joined Single Ogilvy Mather and I worked on the KFC account, obviously Kimberly Clark, which was Huggies, News Limited, Unilever, which had Dove at the time, we were producing that that team of us were probably produced, there was probably a team of 30 to 40 of us were producing close to 60 TV ads a year between all those brands. And and you're, you're in effect running a mini, well, just compared to some other agencies, you're running pretty much an, an agency within an agency. And and so all of a sudden, you as the group account manager, group, group director. account director or yeah. business director, some some of them. Call so it, it was it, it was just it was great experience to move into a CEO gig. Yeah, and and yeah, and so then you by then you knew all the different parts of the agency. You'd you'd proven that you could run that group of clients and make money out of them, and and slowly but surely you got asked to sort of step up into more management roles. Um, and yes, I'd been that whole time I was still playing AFL. Uh, sort of a level down. I played the top amateur grade in Melbourne and then I played in the New South Wales AFL up here. And so we were playing against the Swans. So on, you know, during the week I'm working for Young and Rubicam doing what I was doing. And on the weekends I'm playing on the SCG and the curtain raiser to playing the Swans second grade side. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And mm. and I learned a lot from management from, from playing and then coaching AFL because how to, you know, motivate your teammates when you're not you know, say the coach and you're, you're just one of the senior players and how you coerce and motivate and get the best out of them and, and work as a team and everybody playing their role. There's a lot of similarities in business uh, in that. And I learned a lot of those techniques because people go, how did you learn your management styles? And I'm like, well, being around footy clubs, you know, there's some, some people before a game that want to be shaken and, you know, and some people you just give a nod across the room and they're fired up, you know, and, and you just need to know how everybody works and how to get the best out of everybody and that was a real and then when I coached in my last year in that New South Wales league I was the playing coach and so you weren't on the sidelines making decisions at quarter time half time three quarter time you had moments where you had to make some decisions and so I learned this is where I learned diversity so I had we had three or four assistant coaches who all thought very differently because what I wanted to hear at the break was four different opinions I didn't want them all to go oh mate you're playing really well and aren't we great and we all think this. No, I wanted to hear four very different points of view so that we could go, you know what, thanks for that. We're going to do that one. Um, and so, you know, from that moment on and once I got into more senior management roles and CEO roles, I you always applied had that. applied that. Theory. So, you know, at Ogilvy, we had a young 28-year-old um, guy on our exec team. That's very young to be in an exec team yeah. at a big company like and that. And he was like the head of strategy for our digital division. And he and I said to him, you can say whatever you like. We want to hear you're, you know, you're representing a lot of the young people in this agency and a lot of the target audiences of our clients. And a lot of digital expertise. Yeah. And and that was not done. You know, those sorts of things weren't <laughs> weren't done oh, yeah, that's back very then. Interesting. So, yeah. And so and how did you end up getting the 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 gig that what, what was the company that owns Mojo in that? Oh, so that one. So the the one before when I sort of stepped into my first CEO role, I was sort of the, the sec, you know, there was two of us that were sort of like the second in charge of Ogilvy Sydney. And that was the biggest sort of agency in the country at the time, Singleton Ogilvy and Mather. 
and then they they had an opportunity to buy two companies in Melbourne. One was a great agency called Badger Ogilvy, um, really strategic. Um, Why are all the companies called Ogilvy? Oh, that was that was around the world. There's a guy called David Ogilvy, one of the most famous advertising guys in the world, and uh, and he it was his name that was on the door around the world. It was like a global group of um, agencies. So we merged that and a digital agency together, and that was that merger was very successful. We ended up with sort of a 300 person. Um, $50 million plus business in Melbourne with some of the best clients uh, in town. And then obviously by doing well there, then I got asked to do the national job and I did that for nearly three years. And then I got approached by publicists to to step across to them. So I go from literally the biggest to say the third biggest. Um, and, you know, I was, I think I was mid forties at that point And I, I don't know, it was, I just felt like I had one more big challenge left in me and that I wanted to prove that I could turn an agency around without the team I'd had behind me for nearly 10 years. How could I do that with a new team? I think the Ogilvy guys and the parent company thought I was going to steal half the people. But in my head, I told them I'm not going to take anyone. I want to prove that I can, you know, do this myself. And that was a lot of them, build a new team and bring different people together. Um, And, you know, that business had um, been struggling for about a couple of years before. And we ended up having three years. And by the third year, it was the record year for that company. And, uh, and then and I, what do you think your key to success was? So, I mean, uh, I think applying the rule of uh, diverse opinion and thought that you, you learnt in, in sports to, to, to a company is, is, is a great example. But w- I guess what are other secret yeah. elements that maybe I think uh, they might not be easy to verbalise? No, no, no. I, I think a couple of things. One was being very clear on the vision for the business. Um, and a lot of what I talk about in my 24-hour business plan business now is about clarity of vision of the company. And, you know, if all of a sudden, even if you're merging three companies together, if you can be really clear about what you're trying to do, the peop- the team will get behind you if they believe in that vision. So I think, you know, that's one. I think then, then once you've got that clear vision over the next, say, three years, then it's about continuing to communicate that and, but just then executing it with excellence. Like, you know, there's um, – some Harvard work, it's called the Harvard Business School 4 plus 2 uh, Rule for Growth. And uh, three of their professors, one of them still going now, Boris Groisberg, he's ranked number one professor. He's an expert in growth. And he says there's four not negotiables when you're trying to grow a business. One is a great strategy, so this clear vision, clear purpose, your values, your culture. The next one is executing it with excellence. Then the next one is having the right culture to, uh, to you know, enable it. And the third one is having the right structure. To fourth. enable it. The fourth sure. one, sorry. Yeah, to, to enable it. So that's the, you know, and, and, and when I, I hadn't learnt that until more recent years, but when I look back on, you know, why that Ogilvy merger in Melbourne was successful and why coming into publicists and doing, I mean, the publicist one, we very we, we very quickly as a senior team, classic first hundred days, we went away, we, we, we talked together about what this business could be, what the vision could be, and then we took all the staff away. We had, we were lucky enough to have the Marriott Hotel as a client. And so we, we, we took a whole, well, you know, hundreds of people up to the Marriott on the Gold Coast. And, and one of our big offices was, uh, was in Brisbane. And, um, and we, we literally for two days talked them through where we were going to go and how we were going to do it and the sorts of execution we were going to need. And it was interesting after that. Um, a lot of people were really motivated to, do, to, to be part of the journey and a lot of other people went, oh, this is going to be really hard, and they left. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, clear strategy, clear vision will 
will help sort out the people that want to be involved. I, I, think, that's involved. A, I think that's a great thing. I, I would cheer if that happened because you, you're removing the people who they don't buy that vision. That's fine. You know, we could be wrong. We don't yeah. know yet. <laughs> you know, like you, that's your opinion. You're yeah. entitled to that. You can leave. And the, but the ones who do buy in, at least you know you're left with a with a team of whom believes in your vision yeah. and also believes in. I think the two things you said really important there were how uh, where we where will we go? Why can't I say that properly? <laughs> where will we go, and how will we do it? How will we get there? Basically, yeah. Yeah. those are really two questions and. And then you also had and, and, and motivate people, and then motivate people as to yeah. what that's going to look like. And, and yeah. the motivation was interesting because once business, once your businesses get bigger, um, the motivation piece, you know, you can't get around to a thousand people, right? But what you can do is you can motivate your executive team, and you can motivate the juniors. So I used to spend the majority of my time with my executive. And literally the wow. graduates. I've never heard that before. Because the graduates drive a lot of the culture in an organisation. And if you can convince, if you can be in the process a of hiring them, because most other CEOs don't bother hiring the graduates. So even if they miss out on a job with that company, they go, "Wow, I met the CEO, and he's that company seems like it's going places." Mm. Um, from that interview, that's not a bad outcome, even if they don't get the job, because they go tell five of their friends, "Well, I missed out on the job, but." That was a pretty good place. Yeah, but you know what else? I like and that's a cub because at cub, you, the, I mean, wh- when we're looking at the membership base, the the people that will will probably end up getting the most attention are going to be the longest standing members because they've been there the longest. You've gotten to know them, and you know that you basically they've become your friends. And the new members, because you're making sure that they feel comfortable, they understand the club, they love it, that you know that they they get the rhythm, so that they they they've they've bought into it, they're part of the community, and then they're self sufficient anyway. And then so, the middle, the middle, will see what's happening at the other end, yeah. and they will naturally, yeah. oh, good new people, yeah, oh, the existing <laughs> ones have been there five years before me, love it, must be good the next four Correct. years, next three years. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. the theory that's behind cool. that. Yeah, um, I get that because it's you can't do everything. That's the big, you know, and and strategy. I mean, often people say, "What's you know, you were a CEO for eleven years, and one of the things is strategic. I mean, strategy is all about choice, right? You can't do everything; you've got to make choices. Um, and so that's a, you know, that's a big thing for people to get their heads around. Um, and you know, make and, and then I often say, my daughter used to say, "What do you do every day?" When she was younger, and I say, "I make three hundred decisions, and I need to make two hundred and ninety nine of them well, right? And I need to have people around me that if I'm about to make a bad one there and, and vice versa, right? I, I used to say to all my team, I trust you to make 40 out of 50 good decisions. Um, I'm here to help with the next 10 because I've already made those mistakes. And just so just copy me in on stuff, just, you know, I'm not going to, you know, uh, I just want to see because I'll pick something up that I'm, oh, I did that five years ago, that's not going to be good. And I can just quickly jump in and help them out. Um, and that that sort of thing, you know, we, we, we make decisions every day, lots and lots and lots of decisions. And, uh, and, you know, we, we, we have a go at our – we watch sport and we watch an AFL player or a rugby league player or a cricket player making a bad decision. You know, cricketers, oh, that was a really poor shot. Well, they probably had made 49 out of 50 good decisions before that. They then just made one bad one. So it's about how do we get people, um, you know, coached up and in a mindset where they're, they're more than likely to make the good decisions along the way. Yeah, and if you make one, if you make the, – the, we're expecting a couple bad ones anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about and it. I've made plenty. <laughs> yeah, hundred yeah, percent. And so, I mean, just on the strategy piece, it you've you've now uh, obviously moved out of the uh, CEO life, um, he- heading some of the largest um, 
uh, advertising firms in, in the country. Um, and you've you've focused on uh, creating, uh, w- w- what would it be called, a management consulting firm yeah. or business consultancy yeah. firm, uh, focusing on strategies and plans uh, called the 24-hour uh, business plan. Yep. And what's that all about? So that's one of the things I stumbled across when I stepped out from being a CEO. I got a lot of former clients and colleagues saying, oh, you know, you, are, you ran successful businesses and you saw a lot of successful businesses close up. When you're running those big agency groups, when you're dealing with so many major clients and you're, you're lucky enough to sit in some of their board meetings and executive meetings and, and you see close up what works and doesn't work. So a lot of companies said, oh, can you come and sit with our executive team for a couple of days? Tell us what you think. Give us some feedback on how we might grow the business better. And I said, oh, look, I've had in my mind this sort of plan, a framework. I've never really put it in place. I've put part of it in place at Publicis and Ogilvy, but not the whole thing. And I used to draw things in the back of my book. I'd see something somewhere. I'd go, oh, that could link to that. And so I went back through all my old notebooks. So I remember writing all this stuff down and I, and I started trialing this framework out on these customers. And at this point, I hadn't told anyone I was doing it. I just, it just if it came up, I'd say, look, I, I can help and sit with your exec teams or I can facilitate your strategy days for two or three days. But can I just, while I'm doing it, for no extra cost, can I try out this framework that I've been playing around in my head? And of course they all went, yeah, fine. And I did five or six of them and people were like, wow, this is like really helpful. And the 12th one we did was one of the big tech companies. And uh, – you know, this is when you're testing out your testing it out, 24 yeah, hour business, business plan. plan. And at that point, I don't even think I'd called it the 24 hour business plan. And, uh, and I, why I, is it called that? Cause it's not a 24 hour thing. It's it, not a it, one it's day four, thing. six hour session. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's yeah, pretty clever. Yeah. It's and, a great name. Yeah. And originally it was three, eight hour sessions was how it started. And it was someone, I was actually thinking about writing a book on it. And here's a couple, couple of book ideas I haven't done. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a good friend, an old client of mine, um, Ann Jamison, who's the CEO of Saxton's, she was encouraging me to write a book around all of this stuff, and and uh, and so she put me in touch with a uh, with a with a um, someone who helps coach you on how to write books, and we we're chatting about it, and this name just popped out of this conversation. You know, well, why wouldn't you call it the twenty four hour business plan, given that it's either three eight hour sessions or four six hour sessions? So that's how it started. Um, so very much now, it's the first two sessions are about long term strategy because one of the big challenges is how do you get a really strong three to five year strategy and how do you articulate it clearly so that anyone in the organization can say this is what this company's vision is, purpose is, values are, culture is and how do you be clear on what that growth plan is over say three to five years and how do you visualize that so that literally people can close their eyes and and see the page in front of them and and, and, and read it off at a barbecue. Um, so it's almost turning your strategy into an elevator pitch um, on about three slides even though there's a lot of slides behind it. And and then the last two sessions, coming back to executing with excellence, they are about what's your operational plan for year one. So if that's your three to five year plan, what do we need to do in year one to make, you know, to get off on the right journey? Yeah, I can relate to that and I can see why that would be so important because when we're like, actually this year I came to realisation, I told our leadership team is we're too slow at uh, like we'll say, okay, this quarter or this year, yeah, let's just say this quarter, these are going to be our results. Then you get to that quarter and then to achieve those results, you realize, oh, but you know, to do that, you have to hire these people and do this and change this. And then realistically, you're not hitting that that result that quarter. You're going to hit it when it's done, which might be the next or the quarter after even. So it's, it's a question of, um, uh, you know, like so now in my head, the way I'm thinking about things is, okay, this is where we want to be next year. What do I need to do in order to do – what do I need to do now 
in order to achieve that next year. So I can understand why the first year, you know, action plan that you're talking or whatever yeah. you called yeah. it uh, would be the most important because it's going to set you up to actually achieve then the remaining yeah. goals. And that's what's resonated, I think. Well, two things that we're hearing back from people. So I, I do jokingly call it my accidental business because I had no intention of setting this up. That tech company was the 12th company we did. At that point I went, wow, if I can do this for a half-billion-dollar company, this works. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, the classic confidence when you're stepping out and doing new things. So I had that confidence. I, I chatted to a couple of other former CEO friends of mine who during early COVID had been running well-funded scale-ups and funding stopped and they no longer were CEOs. And so they got on board and um, we worked. I gave them a bit of sweat equity to, to get involved. And rather than it taking me 18 months to get to market properly, it took us six. Um, and then we launched it in um, February 2021. So what's that, 14, 15, 16 months ago. Mm-hmm. And we've now done 81 companies through oh, the program. Do, do many, have any members done done it? We've got we've had a couple of members out of Melbourne and oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in conversations with six or seven in Cool. Sydney now. Yeah, we should probably do it too. Yeah. And really all you've done is you had a great uh, system that worked for you in terms of leading companies strategically to success. You you basically systemized it and, and sim- simplified it, systemized it and are teaching it Yeah, really. And that's all business. Like yeah. you want to make a great sale. This is how we do sales. That's, you know, write down the process and and teach that. So yeah. it's just more a strategy process. It is. And, and we, we, we have a whole lot of um, – uh, young business school students that work for us and we type it up in real time. So the four six-hour sessions, 15 minutes after you finish, you get the plan. So that's the other problem when you when you go away to potentially consulting firms, well, they'll go away for three months and write it all up, whereas we actually co-create it mm. with exec teams in the room. No, so it's really cool. It's, it's, it's a, a lot of fun. It's a different world to what you're used to oh, as well. It's so different, but it's really rewarding because you feel like you're giving back a lot of your knowledge and the fact that we're all CEOs, ex-CEOs involved in it, we're sort of quite practical. Um, and, no, and I think it's good. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, we do actually have to wrap up though. I know I was going on a rant at the start of this episode saying how oh, we could talk forever <laughs> and I definitely could because there's a lot more I want to talk to. We should probably organise a second episode. Yeah. But just so the listeners know, the reason we have to wrap up on time is because there is a renovation on the apartment above <laughs> and they're about to start jackhammering. We won't be able to do it. Uh, which also highlights how working from home probably is not that great of an idea because what happens when you're renovating and there's a whole lot of renovations backed up for the last two years of COVID. But particularly if you're doing podcasts from your living room. <laughs> but um, it, guys, to the listeners, if you want to find out uh, more about Andrew Baxter, favourite books, uh, get in contact with him, uh, key lessons, quotes, and, and all sorts of things, go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you'll find it all there. If you want to catch up with Cub on social, it's at Club United Business on Instagram. And do you want to plug if maybe your podcasts or yeah, you the kind mar- of already have. Yeah, the marketing commute next on the menu and then, yeah, the 24-hour business plan is literally www.24hourbusinessplan.com.au and then my – for those that want to look at some of the more uh, – the other things in, I'm involved in, it's just uh, andrewbillybaxter.com.au. Oh, cool. Oh, so you got your own website. Mm. Fancy. All right, guys, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the show.